All right, thank you guys. Good seeing everyone this morning, and uh, this is always a fun time of the year with, a, uh, with the beginning of a new semester and students returning to our city uh, from uh, Texas Tech to LCU to South Plains to Wayland. Uh, there is always an energy about a university town that other communities do not have, and so we're always grateful when our students come back to the city and uh, football is upon us and all those fun things. And uh, we know that there's many guests here this morning, and we are especially glad that you're here. We do hope that you'll take the time uh, during the course of the service to reach out to us and uh, let us know that you are here uh, because we do anticipate during the course of a service that uh, when we sing songs of praise and adoration to our Heavenly Father, when uh, the Word of God is proclaimed, we, we have this conviction that God's Spirit stirs in the hearts of people and brings them to the place of having questions and making decisions, and maybe that's where you are. Uh, maybe that's the season of life you're in today, and that's what's brought you here. Maybe you have been thinking about becoming a follower of Christ, and you don't know the full implications of that, what that means. We would love to come alongside with you and have a conversation with you about that. Or maybe you are a follower of Christ, but you don't have a church family. And uh, the metaphor of family is a recurring, very powerful metaphor for the people of God found in Scripture. And so we would love to help you in that as well. So we do hope that you would... Uh, uh, as Evan directed, that you would just text FL Respond to the number that is provided for you, 833-571-3475, and we'll be able to follow up with you immediately, and we'll look forward to that. I regret that the returning students find us at the end of chapter 5 uh, or in the middle of chapter 5 in the book of James. We have been doing a verse-by-verse -verse exposition this summer, actually started before the summer, uh, doing this verse-by-verse -verse exposition of the book of James. And today we find ourselves in James chapter 5, and we will be considering uh, verses 7 and 11, uh, 7 through 11, and the question, entertaining the question of why wait? Uh, we're at another point where James makes one of those seeming uh, abrupt transitions to another topic. And uh, you'll notice, if you have been keeping up with this series, uh, that there is a change in tone in the writing of James. If you go back to chapter 4 and verse 13, uh, James was writing with a very prophetic voice, a very indicting voice, a very convicting, uh, almost attacking type of voice towards those that are rich and affluent, uh, the arrogance that assumes that they control where they're going to go, what they're going to do, how long they're going to stay somewhere, and how much money they're going to make. So it's really a full frontal prophetic assault upon the rich and affluent that are oppressing uh, the people people of God. And, uh, but there is a transition. By the time we get to chapter 5 and verse 7, he shifts from being prophetic to being, to being pastoral. He has been very singular in his prophetic attack upon the rich, you who say, singular. And now you'll notice that he trans transitions to speaking to the community of faith, brothers and sisters. You see the compassionate and merciful side of, of James that emerges now in his writing. And when you go back and look at what James has said previously, we really don't know how the rich and the affluent responded to the letter of James. There's no reason we should think that they actually heard his words as they were being read to that messianic community. So we really don't know how the rich and affluent may have responded uh, to the words that he addressed to them, even though they weren't in the audience, which is the nature of prophetic teaching and, and preaching. The ones who need to hear it are not there. Uh, nor do we know how the messianic community 
the, the Jewish believers that heard this letter being read to them, we really don't know how they responded to the address that was being made to the rich. We can probably assume that they received it as good news. They thought it was good news that uh, God is going to justify them, that God is going to rescue them. The rich and the affluent have been oppressing them. So to hear this indictment of James against the rich and affluent, it was probably good news. But what we do know for certain is that in a state of oppression, in a state of suffering, in a life of hardship, in a season of life that is unpredictable, that is hard and difficult and challenging, we know for certainty what James says to the community of faith and how they are to deal with those things. He says in the first clause of verse seven, therefore, based upon everything that has been said, therefore, be patient. Be patient, brothers and sisters. Now, I don't know about you, but I wonder how well did that Messianic community receive those words? I mean, based upon the oppression, based upon the suffering, the pain, the agony, the hardship that that they are facing, that they're dealing with, I find myself, if I was in their shoes, I probably would have hoped for more. More than just, wait. Be patient. I mean, personally, I probably would have hoped that James was going to say something like, God's going to take care of this today. This isn't going to keep going. God's going to write everything immediately. Listen, God's going to take away your pain. God is going to change this situation, these circumstances miraculously. You're no longer going to have to go through what you've been going through. God's going to deal with it right now. He knows your pain, your disappointment. He knows the time that you're losing, the quality of life that you are losing. And he's going to change all that right now. That's what I probably would have hoped. James would have said. But what you find in the, in the entirety of Scripture is that when it comes to the present circumstances of this life, this seems to be the recurring theme. Patience. Waiting. In fact, the psalmist, it's redundant really throughout the psalmist, but in Psalm 37, seven, well, it would serve as a prime example. The psalmist said, be still before the Lord and wait, wait patiently for him. The wisdom writer would say in Ecclesiastes chapter seven in verse, in verse eight, better is the end of a thing than the beginning. In other words, be patient, just wait. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. Even the prophets themselves would borrow this language as the people of God of waiting in your suffering, being patient in your hardship. The prophet Isaiah would say in chapter 40 and verse 31 that those who wait upon the Lord, those who are patient, those who wait, they will renew their strength. By the time you get to the New Testament, even the Apostle Paul would borrow, he would chime in on that that same refrain when he was writing to a persecuted church in in Rome. Paul would write in chapter 8 and verse 25, "But but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in what? In patience. Again, in chapter 12 and verse 12, Paul would say, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. 
And even when Paul would, would seek to describe uh, the love of God and the love of believers for one another to the church at Corinth in chapter 13 in verse 4, you know what Paul would say about love? Love is what? Patient. Love is patient. And by the time Paul would get to his catalog of, of virtues, of the fruit of the Spirit, in chapter 5 of Galatians, in verse 22, within that listing and that catalog of the fruit of the Spirit, there it is again, patient. And so I find myself wishing that more had been said by James. But perhaps we need to consider the words of of Aristotle who said, patience is bitter, but its fruit is sweet. And that's really what the biblical writers have been saying. That patience is bitter, patience is hard, it is difficult and challenging. None of us like the difficult circumstances of, of this present life that can come upon us. But when we are patient, when we endure, and those two must be taken together, and they are in this, in this passage, when, when patience and endurance prevail, well, sweetness emerges. The good thing, I guess the better side of this, beyond James saying just be patient, James doesn't just say that and move on. Now, the patience that he expects of us, and it is, and it is an expectation, it's, a, it's an exhortation, it's an imperative, which means it's a command. Be patient, my brothers and sisters. It's not a divine option. But the patience that he requires of us, that Scripture would, would require of us, it, 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 it's not without basis. It emerges, the patience that is, is to characterize our lives in the adversities of this present life, it's based upon some things. The first thing is, notice in verses seven and eight, patience reveals the kind of patience that James is talking about and expects in the life of believers in the context of our adversity. It is a patience that reveals an eschatological awareness. Now, by eschatological, that, that's a good theological word. It has to do with the last days. Eschaton, last days. So whenever you hear that term eschatological, it's talking about the return of Christ, the last days, the day of the Lord. And those who are present, those who are patient, James says they have a perspective on life that the Lord is near. Notice how he says it in verse 7. Let me read verse 7 in its entirety. It says, therefore, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soul, being patient about it until it, gets, until it gets the early and late rains. You too, he said, like the, like the farmer, like the farmer who understands the changing seasons of the year, the changing seasons of the calendar. You too be patient. You understand the changing seasons of life. And like the farmer plants faithfully, expectantly, with anticipation. You live your life faithfully with this anticipation of what God is doing. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord, he says, is near. 
because you are in the eschaton. You as the followers of Christ, you are in the last days. I mean, we literally have been, church, listen, we have been in the last days since the day of Pentecost and the fulfillment of the, of the prophecies of Joel in chapter 2 and verse 28 where Joel prophesied that at that time, talking about the day of Pentecost, what occurred on the day of Pentecost, that at that time, I will pour out my spirit. I will pour out my spirit upon all mankind in the last days, which we saw the day of Pentecost, and your sons and your daughters. I know that aggravates some denominational heads, but your sons and your daughters, they will prophesy, they will preach. The good news, the gospel will be proclaimed. I'm sometimes asked, you know, individuals, they always ask this question, sometimes based upon how tragic the headlines of the morning paper are, they'll say, Pastor, you think we're in the last days? Well, yeah, but I've always thought we're in the last days. We've been biblically in the last days for 2,000 years since the day of Pentecost. But it's a sense of anticipation, it's a sense of God's imminence, the nearness of God. In fact, this, this phrase that is used here in, in verse 9, uh, in verse 8, that the Lord is near, that is used some 41 times in the New Testament. That Greek word that is translated is near, 41 times in the New Testament. And it's a tone, it's an attitude that is prevalent among, among the biblical writers. Paul would say that, that the night has gone and, 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 and the day is upon us. There is this eschatological awareness in, in the writings of the New Testament. 1 Peter 4, 7, it says, the end of all things, there it is again, is near. So the night is gone, the day is near. The end of all things is near. And so there's this awareness of being in the last days that evokes patience and absolute trust among the people of God. See what James is doing? James isn't trying to answer all of our Western world question, our Western uh, worldview perspective. He's not trying to answer all the questions we might have about the return of Christ. I mean, the ancient biblical text is ill-equipped to answer. Uh, it's not written to answer our Western questions. So James isn't trying to write and bring clarity to something that is confusing. He's not trying to, to muddy the waters of something that should be clear. What James is saying, when he writes about the nearness of the Lord, that we are in these last days as the people of God. What he wants to do is to frame for us a perspective in how we approach life that sees beyond these circumstances, knowing with confidence, as James said in chapter four and verse four, that our hardships and our difficulties and our cries have fallen upon the Lord of the armies. And if I believe that, if I have that conviction that our cries and the cries of God's people have fallen upon the ear of the Lord of the armies, then I, if I believe it, I have the conviction that God in his time will make things right and he will mete out his justice. But in the meantime, we must patiently and faithfully wait with an absolute trust in God. 
A year before Henry Nouwen died, he wrote a book entitled Sabbatical Journeys. And in that book that is filled with numerous accounts and personal stories, he tells a, he tells a story of a surprising friendship that he formed with, with a group of trapeze artists. They were called the Flying Rudellas. But he saw them performing at, at a circus, and, and he was fascinated by their swinging, the high trapeze, and all of that. And, and he struck up a, a friendship with them that had a profound impact upon his, upon his life. And as he learned more about the, the art of, of trapeze, they explained to him the unique kinship and relationship between the flyer and the catcher. Because the flyer, at some point in the act, when they are flying high above the circus floor or the fair floor and flying high above the crowd, at some point the flyer has to let go. And as he's flying through the air, body arched, he does so with absolute trust that the catcher will catch him. Now, it's a unique kinship. Because the worst thing the flyer can do is try to catch the catcher. He must, in absolute trust, allow the catcher to catch the flyer. I think that may, may well portray the kind of patience and the kind of trust that James is describing in this passage of scripture that when we feel out of control in this life when life is just flying at us in every direction every kind of hardship every kind of challenge and difficulty that you and I with great patience have to wait for the one that the prophet described in Isaiah 41:10 as the one who says he will hold us up with his righteous right hand. And so when you and I display in life, whatever the circumstances may be, when you and I display the patience that James is speaking of, more than likely it's a patience that is based upon an eschatological awareness that the day of the Lord is near and God's justice will not be denied. A second thing that James would add to this about this kind of patience that he expects of us, not only is it a patience that reveals eschatological awareness, but it's also a patience that reveals transcendent awareness. That whenever I speak and use that word transcendent, when something is, is transcendent, it transcends the human experience. It means that, that we believe there is something supernatural. We believe that there is something over us and above us, that life is not limited to, the, limited to that which can be seen and touched and, and measured and, uh, in, a, in a scientific laboratory. That there is something that is unseen, that there is something acting over us to whom we, we are accountable. It means that I'm not held hostage by my circumstances, that there is something on the other side of these circumstances that God has in store, that God is doing. 
I want us to look at it here in verse nine, the way it's portrayed. James says, do not complain brothers and sisters against one another so that you may not be judged. We, he's already talked about this. So that you may not be judged, behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The judge is God himself. The judge is just, he's talking about the proximity of God, the nearness of God. He's just on the other side of the door. He is here with us. And when you and I exude patience, when we reflect patience in our lives, we need to understand that at the same time, this is the eminence of God, the nearness of God, the transcendence of God brought together in an incarnational way in our lives. We believe God is near. We believe that God is, is present in proximity. And we believe that God is acting and working redemptively in a way of renewal and restoration that goes far beyond the present circumstances as unfavorable as they may be. Now, we already know, having gone through this, James has not gone a single chapter without mentioning the divisiveness of the tongue and the need to control the tongue. You go back to chapter 1 and verse 12 and verse 26 there in, in chapter 1, and then chapter 2 and verse 12, chapter 3 and verse 6, chapter 4 and verse 11. And now here, he's talking about the divisive nature of the tongue. And James' primary concern is about the witness and the testimony of the church to the greater world. Because you and I as the church, as the body of Christ, we bear the testimony of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And so James wants us to know that we are expected to behave differently and that a, church, that a tongue can easily become the thing that, that runs out of control and becomes divisive in the body of Christ and it becomes detrimental to the witness and the testimony of the church. Now listen, James is not naive. James is not uninformed. James understands well the effect of oppression and duress and stress in a person's life. And when you're going through this kind of duress, this Anawim community, this impoverished community, an abject poverty that none of us in this room could possibly fathom in our life, it creates a stress and a duress to a degree in life where probably one of two things, your desire is to do one of two things, is to either act out violently against your oppressors, which James has been seeking to oppress. There are those in that messianic community, they're trying to organize, even some teachers who are trying to organize those kind of efforts, who have become divisive themselves within the greater, uh, the greater body and they want to act out violently. But when that is suppressed, if you can't act out violently against those who oppress you, then what's left? Well, you act divisively towards those who are near you. But James says, listen, you need to understand these circumstances do not define you. They will change. Every circumstance is going to change in life. And the conviction is, is that in the transcendence, transcendence of God's working, God is actively doing something that is redemptive, that is going to be, bring renewal, that is going to bring restoration. 
but it takes patience. It takes endurance. You have to wait. The great French artist Pierre Renoir over time became more and more crippled. Eventually he was, he was confined to a wheelchair. And even though arthritis had crippled his body and his hands were, were curled and, and gnarled, Renoir continued to paint. Now he could only hold a, he could only hold a paintbrush lightly in his fingertips and every stroke brought agonizing pain. A friend that was watching this one day asked the artist, how is it that you can paint at the cost of such great torture? Renoir's wisdom and having lived with pain for such a long time in his life, said this, the pain passes, but the beauty remains. The pain of this life, it passes, but the beauty remains. Or as James H. Brooks put it, sickness is a rough but thorough teacher of experimental theology. And it almost compels the soul, it almost compels the soul of the believer to stay itself upon God. James is convinced that if we as followers of Christ have this transcendent awareness that our God is working redemptively, then you can have the patience that endures the trials and the hardships of life. There's a final thing about this patience. This kind of patience that James is describing and that is to characterize our lives is also a patience that reveals historical awareness. Reveals historical awareness. It's a patience that understands that each life, each of us, individually and collectively, that we, are a, that we each one are a part, we are a page in the narrative of faith that God is writing in his, in his salvation history that we are a part of that narrative. He said this very thing here in verse 10. As an example, brothers and sisters, of suffering and patience, take the prophets. Take the prophets who spoke in, in the name of the Lord. Now, Stephen would say of the prophets in Acts chapter seven and verse 25, is there a single prophet that your fathers, that our fathers did not persecute? See, the prophets endured a great, a great deal, and yet, and yet they endured because they would see God vindicated. And so James is holding them forth before us as, as an example. He says to this messianic community, look at your own history. And to us, it's no less true. Look back at your history. Of, uh, uh, look at the lineage of your faith. 
Look at the personalities that made up your history that, that are responsible for the handing down of faith from generation to generation. As an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who's, who spoke in the name of the Lord and they would see God vindicated. And see, by, by enduring, by being patient, you and I are connecting ourselves to that ancient story which will become the future story of God's final salvation. When you and I persevere and endure the present trials of this life, we are connecting ourselves to the ancient story. But did you notice, he said, we count those, verse 11, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Now, I, I have read Job a great many times, and just to be honest with you, I really don't know where that phrase comes from, where individuals talk about the patience of Job. We've all, we've all heard it, we've all said it, haven't we? Well, that guy, he's got the patience of Job. Because when I see Job, I don't see patience. I really don't. In fact, Job, Job seems a little self-righteous to me in a great many places. And what's with this insistence to God of having to answer for my unjust suffering? Uh, that, that's Job. If, if I know anything about Job that is certain, Job is a whiner, Job's a complainer. Yet here it talks about the endurance of Job. Now the good news of that is is that we don't have to understand patience as being perfect and without flaw. Well, that certainly characterized Job. To embody, to be the incarnate presence of this kind of patience that James is describing doesn't mean you have to be perfect, doesn't mean you have to be without flaw, doesn't mean you can't ask questions even. Doesn't mean you can't be upset sometimes with, when, when the wheels are falling off of life, that's fine. But when it speaks of the endurance of Job, you know what it's speaking to? Is that even though he whined, even though he was a little bit self-righteous, even though he was insistent about wanting God to answer for the injustices of life, you know what? He never compromised the integrity of his faith. He was whining and complaining forward, never compromising the integrity of his faith, continually putting himself out there into the unfolding purposes of God, looking unto the hills from which my Redeemer cometh. Never lost a faith. Never lost a faith that God was doing something. And he endured to see what the wisdom writer said in Ecclesiastes, that the end of a thing is always better than its beginning. And it was for Job, a man who knew great loss. The end of the thing was better than the beginning. And even with all of his questions, even with all of his, his insistence upon answers, all of his complaining, he stayed in the race. Many of you will remember the epic film, Ben-Hur. 
Ben-Hur won 12 Oscars in the 1960s. Great movie. If you haven't seen it, you'll pull it up. But one of the things that was required of, of the many actors in Ben-Hur is that, is that there, if, you, if you remember the movie, if you've seen it, there were a lot of chariot races. Well, in that day and time, there, you know, there was nobody proficient in, in, you know, in driving chariots. And Charlton Heston, who won an Oscar, Best Actor that year, 1960, for Ben-Hur, he really struggled with, with driving a chariot. But he kept practicing. And he got to a place where he felt like he could, you know, he could move it forward. But one day as they were preparing to shoot a scene, the major scene of the major race, this major chariot race that was about to unfold, and the script called for Charlton, Charlton Heston's character to win the race. Charlton Heston confessed his difficulties in driving this chariot to the director, Cecil B. DeMille. And he told Mr. DeMille, he said, listen, I, I, I want to be forthright with you. I'm really struggling in driving this chariot. He said, I think I can keep it in the race, but I don't know if I can win. Cecil B. DeMille said, you just stay in the race and I'll make sure you win. I think that's what James is saying to us. In these trials and these circumstances, you, you just wait. You be patient. God is going to make sure you win. I hear the voice of the Hebrew writers in my mind even now in Hebrews chapter 12. Let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us. Listen, I don't know what pain you face. I don't know what struggles you have today. But what I say to you is just wait. You just wait. And it may not be correct. For the audience, this messianic community to whom James is writing, never improved in their lifetime. They're still waiting their day of redemption. Things never got, from an earthly perspective, things never got better for that messianic community. In fact, it got worse, if you could even imagine that. In your situation, it may not get, it may not get better. But you wait. You don't give up. You stay in the race. Because I promise you, based upon God's word, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. Let's pray together. Our Father, how grateful we are for the promise of your word and the promise that the end is better than the beginning. When the trials and the circumstances of this life can so control and dictate our attitudes and our perspective, Father, how good it is that you have supplied us with an awareness of who you are, an awareness of your presence, an awareness and a promise that you are working redemptively in this world, that you are, in fact, making all things new. And so, Lord, until that day, might we be the kind of followers of Christ that are found to be patient,
and enduring. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And as we stand this morning, we will be dismissed with this blessing, a word from the Apostle Paul to the church at Thessalonica from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. God bless you and have a good week.